Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes, a new podcast by, for and about writers and writing. My name's Simon Acom. I'm working on a book on the recent evolution of the British Army for William Heinemann and I'm also a journalist. My name is Cassie Sinclair and I'm the author of The Secret Lives of Colour, a book about pigments, dyes and hues published late last year by John Murray and I'm also a design journalist working in London. And for this week's podcast episode, we spoke to Imogen Pellant, my incredibly glamorous literary agent who works for an agency called Majark in London. We met with Imogen in her office uh, in central London and she spoke to us on what being a literary agent actually involves. She gave tips for aspiring authors and also aspiring agents and she explained some of the distinctions between the publishing process for fiction and non-fiction. To start off with, we'd like to know the most basic of basic questions. What exactly is a literary agent? Um, A literary agent, I suppose, is at its heart the kind of business person working for the author. So we represent writers and we sell their books to publishers, we manage their careers and we handle all the kind of money and boring contract stuff as well as actually getting the ideas out there to the right people in the first place. Okay, and what was your background? I've always been very, very... I've I've always been crazy about books. read loads at a young age, I was completely immersed in it. My family um, had all worked in books as well, so it was kind of a world that I knew and I didn't know what I would do outside of it. Um, So I, upon finishing university, I studied English. um, And when I finished at university, I had already applied for several work experience placements. Um, I knew, well, I I felt very sure that I wanted to go on to the literary agent side because I've always liked numbers and contracts and the (laughs) business side as well as the book side, which I think can sometimes be quite unusual with um, Mm -hmm. people who love books or people in the arts in general. Um, So I had applied for work experiences at different agencies. I didn't go into a publishing house. Uh, I did one at... Uh, Aitken Alexander, a very well-respected agency, another at RCW, who have brilliant authors, a mm-hmm. third at a place called Abner Stein, which handles loads of amazing American books in the UK. And it was while I was at that third work experience, having, I had some more lined up before, oh, sorry, I, have, I had some more lined up for after. Um, but while I was at that third one, Luckily for me, as it is so often luck in these situations, um, someone within Aiken Alexander was moving into the translation rights department Mm -hmm. there, who had been an assistant, and so an assistant role opened up, and I applied and got the job. That's, I mean, obviously you knew firstly, you were very certain about what you wanted to do, and also you were very familiar with that world. Mm. For someone who isn't as perhaps as, as familiar as you are and doesn't have that kind of deep knowledge of the industry, what would be the right way to get into to, to doing you know, a, literary, a literary agent job? Literary agents in general, or sorry, literary agencies in general are a bit more, they tend to be less corporate, so actually it is as simple as writing to as many places as you can, sending your CV, 
um, and just kind of getting in touch and crossing your fingers and saying that you'd be around, you know, whenever it is. Uh, obviously, an impressive CV and talking about books and not only books that you might have studied at school or university, but uh, contemporary titles. So really, always reading around what's happening in the world of books today mm. and what's working and what you really enjoy and being very clear on your own taste and mm -hmm. all of those things are what people in publishing really look for rather than someone who has read all the classics and yeah. you know, can kind of regurgitate them. Um, some agencies, some bigger agencies offer more uh, kind of, what do you say, uh, they offer a bit more kind of structured work experience placements, mm -hmm. so it's more of an application process. Um, and so those are also available, but I think more highly contested. Whereas if you start just writing into smaller agencies, we always need help and people are always also happy to kind of have people in. So it's, it's a numbers game, I mm -hmm. think, really. Can you uh, tell us a bit about your current list? Uh, and you know how many authors you've got on there and, and what the spread is between people doing different kinds of work. Yeah, absolutely. So I currently represent probably about 20 authors. Okay. Uh, they are a mix between fiction and non-fiction. Uh, I think probably slightly more non-fiction at the moment, but there's not really any particular... It, it kind of depends what takes my fancy or comes across my desk or what I have the fortune to uh, be able to read. Um, so in terms of the non-fiction, it ranges from very serious history, there's some cookery. Um, I like, I, I say this on our website, serious subjects looked at in interesting ways. So something that has a real place on people's shelves, but is doing it in a way that hasn't been done before. And is that a, a pretty standard number of authors for an agent to represent? Um, I think, I mean, it's it's kind of impossible to say. There are some who have over a hundred um, but a lot of those might be estates or dormant clients and that would be kind of towards the the kind of height of one's career when when you know, maybe the head of an agency and also have an assistant who does a lot of work for you as well I think yeah around the kind of 20 to 30 benchmark is a comfortable place for an agent to certainly have enough to be getting on with but not neglect any of their authors. And when in your career as an agent do you start having your own list or, or representing your own? It, it really depends on um, on a kind of so many factors that can't really be uh, judged I guess. Um, I started at Aitken Alexander in 2010 and in 2012 I was given the opportunity to represent a couple of authors who had been in some kind of casual conversations with the agency but for various reasons um, it, it became a project that kind of landed on my desk and I was very lucky that my uh, boss at the time was so happy for me to take over on something and to try and sell something um, and actually the first book I sold was a book called Wounded by Emily Mayhew, which Bodley Head at Random House bought, and it went on to be shortlisted for the Welcome Prize, which was a lovely way to start. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Following on from what Cassia was asking about earlier, about how you become an agent, if, if you're an aspirant writer and you're looking to get an agent or to get representation, how would you advise people going down that route? Um, so the submissions process is... Um, 
simultaneously very transparent and very opaque. Um, an author should submit to as many agents as they want, but not within the same agency. Um, generally, uh, agents ask for about three chapters or 50 pages, a one page synopsis or something more than one page, uh, and a covering letter. And so that can be, with a bit of tailoring per agent, kind of blanket sent out to as many agents as you fancy. Um, younger agents tend to be hungrier, tend to be maybe a bit quicker um, to jump on things because they've, you know, that they're really looking to grow their list, where more experienced agents have quite enough going on on their plate already. Um, so there is the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which Bloomsbury publish every year, which has a list of all the agencies. Um, a lot of you know online research will tell you lots of things. I always think um, looking at agents' bios on their agent website and also looking at things like their Twitter, if they have one, just gives you a sense of what sort of thing they might be interested in. You want to give it the best chance, give your give your writing the best chance by tailoring your submission wherever possible to the sorts of agents who represent the the kind of thing that you're that you're writing. And not just in your own experience but more generally, does does stuff get taken up off these blind submissions and seen through to potentially to publication? They do. Um they do, although it's worth remembering that we receive such an enormous volume and so there are sometimes you know wonderful stories of something being picked up off the quote-unquote slush pile and selling for six figures and then going on to sell thousands of copies or or even perhaps a million um but those are obviously very very rare um i would say i i've taken on only a few authors from um from my submissions uh, and bearing in mind that I often receive about five a day, that becomes a quite low percentage when you yeah. think about kind of four years in agenting. But it absolutely does happen, and it's something that when an agency is slow to get back on their slush pile, they're very aware that they're not answering a part of their job, and sometimes um, agents will close their submissions so that they can focus on other things and then reopen them when they're um, in a position to give them the attention that they deserve. And in terms of with a with a writer you've taken on and you're representing, how does that relationship work? Um, you know, and what are the, the sort of potential pitfalls on both sides, both from the writer and how does it work? In what sense? Just in the, in the most practical sense, I suppose. Really, people would be interested in what what kind of discussions are you having, and do you feel you have a kind of mentoring role as well? With yeah, I I think as an agent, um, you act as. Uh, business person, you, know, you, you act as the negotiator, you are often uh, the first reader, you're often editing their work, um, it's often also, it, it, we're a soundboard for ideas and even a kind of like psychologist role as well, anyone, um, if, if an author is having a crisis of confidence, an agent will be there to kind of help talk them down from a kind of writer's block shelf. Relationships between authors and agents often work in different ways, so I have some authors who really like to meet up regularly, have a coffee and just talk about what they're working on, how their writing is going, to feel like they're on the right track, and others I might not hear from 
for six months to a year and I'll you know, check in with them on an email and they'll say, yes, I'm writing and it's going well and <laughs> please leave me alone for a bit longer now <laughs> until I'm ready to send you something. Uh, so they, they really vary in terms of what kind of level of support an author wants, but I, you know, wherever possible, will always be responsive to what that author needs specifically, especially at that time. Obviously, you said you you kind of came into the industry in sort of 2010. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, which must have been, I mean, I, I know from, um, uh, you know, journalism, <laughs> that industry was going through a huge revolution at the time and um, advertising was decimated and um, people's financial models were having to, to, to mm-hmm. adapt mm-hmm. rapidly. And something similar has, has happened in the publishing industry or perhaps was thought to be happening in the industry and perhaps Mm. hasn't happened in quite the same way. Can you talk a little bit about that and and sort of where we've ended up? Yeah, so when I joined, um, when I joined publishing in 2010, the situation was quite bleak. It was not long after the financial crash and books had fallen down for a lot of people as something that they weren't really looking to buy. so sales weren't great. It was also at the same time as ebooks really, really coming to the fore. It was around the time that the Kindle, um, not first launched, but certainly started to become really popular and um, and an affordable item that people would buy. Uh, so Amazon really changed that landscape as well, uh, and that has led to some uh, problems from the outset in publishing. Uh, publishers pay. Um, an ebook royalty, which uh, which um, is on their receipts, but it was uh, determined at a time when a lot of those books needed to be digitised. There were lots of costs involved. It was also a cautious royalty because no one knew what the lay of the land would be, and most publishers, not all, but most, have refused to move on that point since. Mm-hmm. So, have there been kind of positives from? Um, from ebooks and kind of you know Amazon, but you know the huge giants in the industry who are being very disruptive. Have there been things that have been shaken up that probably needed to be shaken up? I think that ebooks are great. I read ebooks from time to time. I also use um, a Kindle to read my manuscripts for work most mm-hmm. of the time because it saves on printing out vast reams of paper. Um, although I don't tend to edit on them so much. Um, I think there have been some incredible number of sales of books through ebooks. Um, some genres really work brilliantly, thrillers especially um, work very well, genre fiction in general works well, non-fiction not so much. So it's brilliant to be able to, to feel like that is a medium that is reaching people who might have read less before it was so convenient. Mm-hmm. And um, now that the kind of the, you know, things have settled down a little bit more, what is your kind of prognosis for the industry, as much as you can tell? Such a huge question. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, I think, well, I think we've seen um, a bit of a plateau on ebooks, and so I think actually, in that sense, we've all, the, 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 kind of, the market has settled a bit. Uh, paperbacks still sell very strongly. I think the hardback as a kind of desirable object mm. is always slowly growing but um, but definitely growing uh, I think and I, and I think that that's a really wonderful way to celebrate books uh, paperbacks when they were first brought in were a kind of disposable book mm. and ebooks have now 
pushed in front of them to be an even more disposable book. I mean, with ebooks, you don't actually own them, you're licensing them. Mm -hmm. So it's even less to kind of think about, and you delete them off a device, and if you need to get them back, you usually can. Um, But I think that there's been some widening between a hardback, the kind of the books that you want to have on your shelf and the stuff that you might read on holiday or that maybe isn't quite so important to you to have forever. Mm-hmm. Great. And is there a distinction between agents, between those who handle exclusively the, the contracts and so forth regarding books and people who take on a bigger role in terms of promotion, almost kind of talent management with that, with that taking on TV rights, that sort of thing? Well, um, we... Agents will almost always retain film and TV rights from a publisher. Uh, We tend to be better placed um, to make the best use of those rights than the publisher. A lot of agencies have in-house film and TV agents. Others have sub-agents that they have good relationships with. Um, It also means if a publisher is assigned those rights that the author loses a share of that before they even get to an agent's commission. Um, in terms of marketing and media, some agencies have uh, tried to kind of widen that net, not only for their own authors, but for other authors who might be looking for a particular extra bit of support, maybe as a one-off, uh, maybe on an ongoing basis. But I think it's a bit early to say whether those are really taking off in terms of the media and marketing management. Um, because a publisher is there to do that. They have marketing departments and publicity departments. So um, whilst, the own, whilst there is always an onus on the author, particularly in the age of Twitter, to kind of be proactive, um, it's, it's still, the roles of agent and publisher are still, very mu- are, are still quite fixed. And another thing that we're keen on the podcast in general to talk as openly as possible about money and about some of the financial aspects, could you explain how agents' fees tend to work? An agent doesn't charge a fee, and nor should a publisher. Um, we only work on commission. I know that there are some agencies that try and charge, or that do charge, reading fees on submissions. And we, the um, Authors Agents Association, deem that unethical. And to be a member of the AAA, there are certain rules that we all have to follow. Um, commission tends to be standard across the entire industry. It is 15% on uh, contracts sold in the UK, 20% on translation deals, and 20% on American or Canadian deals. Can we talk a little bit about the kind of mechanics of, of how just how books are sold mm. and the, some of the distinctions between how uh, how nonfiction and fiction are, are sold and with the role of the agent yeah. and the publisher? Absolutely. With, uh, um, so fiction, um, if you're writing a novel, it shouldn't be submitted to an agent until it's finished. And by finished, not just when you put the last full stop on the last page, but when you have maybe taken some time away from it, reread it, possibly shared it with some people who you trust, though perhaps not just people who are going to tell you that it's brilliant. You know, you, you, Someone who you trust to give you good criticism but criticism nonetheless and should you submit the entire manuscript to an agent no it will normally only be the first three chapters or 50 pages but an agent will if they're interested in the submission will ask for the full manuscript in writing a novel 
there is so much to be done and it's so hard to sustain that tension and that storytelling throughout that just having three brilliant chapters isn't enough and it isn't enough of a promise to an agent that you'll be able to pull off the whole thing. Um, we will read those three chapters and we will read a detailed synopsis. I, I always read the synopsis if I'm interested in the chapters because I want to see how that story plays out. And sometimes in reading the ending of a novel, which I had been enjoying, I sometimes think that there isn't enough there and I, and I don't call it in when I otherwise might have. But when I do call something in, it's because I'm excited by it at that moment and want to read the rest pretty much immediately, you know, within the next few days. Um, and do you feel that a, a novel is, is a harder sell than a non-fiction book in some ways? Uh, it, it's been suggested to me that it's almost a different part of the brain that's making the call on whether a, a novel works as opposed to non-fiction. I, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, a novel is operating almost entirely to an emotional part of your brain, the empathetic part, the kind of the, maybe the romantic part of your brain, or or how and and it might reflect how you view the world, and that's a very personal thing that one can't really account for or fully understand. Um, nonfiction, a brilliant idea is a brilliant idea, and so if there's a great author who's you know, who's writing it and working on it an editor at that point can see what it is that they're buying into whereas a novel if a character doesn't live up to um, an editor's expectations or the ending uh, falls down that will be enough for them to decide that they're not interested in taking it further and say you have um, read a brilliant um, proposal or you, you fall in love with a novel what happens next what would the next what would the next steps be the next step would be to meet with the author um, I think it's important when when an author submits to agents if an agent calls in either a full manuscript or says that they would be interested in meeting with the author or indeed jumping straight into offering representation um, an author should always be in touch with every other agent who has that manuscript or proposal who hasn't yet um, passed on it. And from there, the author is really putting themselves in a strong position. It, it, it's courteous to agents, but it also makes us sit up and take notice and bring it to the top of our pile and look at it as quickly as we can. And then really everything's in the author's hands and they can meet with as many agents as they like. Um, but I would suggest working with the agent who you feel like you could have a business relationship with, but also, you know, spend quite a lot of time with. And it, and writing, even if you're writing nonfiction, is a personal act. And I think there needs to be a level of kind of of getting on with your agent as a human being. Um, and and also, I think it's important to ask the agent about your book or ask what they would change or what suggestions they have because you want to ensure that their vision for your book is the same as your own. Sometimes books can be seen in very different ways for very different markets or in terms of non-fiction going in different directions. Mm. So having that two-way conversation about your own work can be very illuminating. And can we talk a little about the uh, the process for non-fiction, how that differs and, and how a proposal tends to be structured for a non-fiction book? Absolutely. So um, a proposal is quite a malleable beast. It can take many forms. Um, 
it tends to, what I advise uh, my non-fiction authors is to have a kind of outline or pitch to the publisher as, a, as an opening shorter introduction and then a chapter breakdown, so where you see the whole arc of the book going and what will come under each section. And whilst that is tends to be quite short, maybe two, maybe three pages, it's very clear to see whether you think there's enough stuff there to really make a book or whether it feels a bit thin or whether it feels like it doesn't have a clear arc or you know it's kind of like darting around and and doesn't really know what it is yet uh, and then some sample material so an introduction and um, I would say a couple of chapters to an agent would be enough. One thing I was surprised about going through the process myself was just the scale of a non-fiction proposal that I think mm. when I first thought I wanted to write a book I read two sides of a four and was, was gently yeah. praised it was, <laughs> was inadequate and in yeah. fact I think mine ended up being 60 pages or, or something like that mm. but it, how, mm. how much range do you see in in, in the length of yeah. the proposal, um, I would say, the sh- well, apart from a couple that are a couple of pages and not, not quite enough, I say anywhere in the range of sometimes as short as 30, but normally up to 60. I think I've seen up to 80 or even 100 uh, before. As nonfiction is generally sold on proposal, and particularly if you're a first-time writer, this is a publisher willing to fork out cash without a book in existence. So there needs to be enough for them to feel like they know what they're getting themselves into, that their sales team are getting themselves into. It needs to fill them with the confidence that the book can exist, that it will be a good thing once it's ready. Is it true that non-fiction is always sold off proposal? Because I'd heard that even if you've got a complete manuscript, that that's not wanted, that what you need is, is within this kind of, as you say, 60 to 100 page No, I don't, I don't think it's always sold in proposal. I think it's... I, I have sometimes sent a sort of proposal version of a full manuscript that's in existence. Um, I think one of the great advantages of selling on proposal is that an editor can grasp onto the idea but if they're not sure about where the book goes or or quite on the structure, it's easier for them to feel like they can ask the author to make changes at that stage than it would be with a novel. And and is there generally more money available for nonfiction than not? Or is that, again, too crude a way to, to look at it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there are any figures on that. Um, I think it tends... I. I think advances vary so much. I feel like advances are more volatile in fiction. That's the way I think I put it. Um, I'm not sure whether the payout for non-fiction is generally higher than fiction, but I think there's a greater range of what's seen as kind of a respectable offer from a major publisher in fiction than in non-fiction. And um, again, so that you know, we're trying to make this so someone with no knowledge of the, of the industry can, uh, can follow. Could you explain what an advance is for, for someone who, oh yes, of course. who doesn't know that? So um, when uh, receiving an offer for a book, a publisher will, on almost all occasions, so occasionally not, offer an advance. And that is an advance of money against royalties and earnings. Okay. So against that would be any sales of the book abroad if um, if the publisher has foreign rights it would be um, any copies of books sold they're they're tottering they're, they're kind of totting up 
the numbers to make back the money that they have advanced you to write or edit the book or for that time. And after that, um, an author goes into earning money, and that's when royalty checks start coming through. Sure. And and the periods when the advance is delivered, it tends to be on signature and then added series of tranches. Yes. Um, so it tends to be anywhere between two and four tranches, occasionally one. Uh, so the first is almost always signature. The second is often delivery and acceptance, crucially. <laughs> The publisher has to accept the manuscript, you can't just send it to them and they'll release money. Um, and then on the first publication, um, which will generally be a hardback, and then occasionally uh, there will be a fourth trance on paperback publication. Certainly my own experience when you're, you're an aspirant writer and you're in your, say, your early 20s, someone's showing interest in your, in your work for the first time is tremendously exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're dealing with people in the industry, with editors and agents. How do you, how do you go about making sure that those relationships are, are professional, that they're not exploitative, that it's all sort of set up on, on the kind of healthy, healthy terms? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of not exploitative, a very kind of first step uh, would be to check that the agency are part of the Authors Agents Association um, and also have a look at their other authors. I, I mean, we, like everyone else, have to start somewhere, but I also think that you need to, unless you feel incredibly certain of what you're going into, you want to feel like your your work is being handled by someone who you know, handles some other great work that you admire or that you know you, you think is... reputable and good Um, in terms of the relationship itself I I do think that initial conversation uh, with an agent before you appoint them and I would and I would say never to appoint an agent without at the very least having a telephone conversation with them it's much more important a relationship the one that can just be done over email even if email is your preferred method of communication um, the sense of the person uh, remembering that this is someone who will be handling your business for you that um, who will be handling your money who will be turning around your contracts so it needs to be someone who you trust um, and 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 feel that um, feel that confidence in to be thorough and and to really understand your work and do the best thing for it. But yes, I, I, I agree with you. I think um, making sure that you are going into a relationship with an agent for the right professional reasons and that it isn't just because the opportunity presents itself um, is really important. And um, two final questions from mm-hmm. me. Uh, the first is, could you tell us a little bit about the agency you're working for now and sort of their ethos and, and what they're about? Uh, yes, yeah, so I work for an agency called Marjak Scripts Limited. Um, it started out as a video game agency, but uh, handling some books for fun, really, on the side. And then the book side of things really took over. I have five agent colleagues um, and... We are all quite separate in our tastes, so there is some crossover, um, ranging from very commercial fiction, a lot of thrillers, I handle most of the non-fiction, the literary fiction, Um, and in terms of our ethos, we like to really always think about um, 
yeah, from our video game beginnings, thinking about online, thinking about digital, uh, thinking about film and TV, as all agents do. I think we all really feel strongly about our relationships with our authors. Um, my co colleagues and I are often kind of tra travelling to book launches around the country. I think it's important to support your authors wherever possible, uh, to kind of be around for them to speak to. And uh, also, as I've mentioned before, the editorial side of things, I think it's important not to just have something hit your desk and immediately send it off again. Um, really engaging with the work and thinking about it and trying to make it the best you can for your author and you know anything that's good for your author is good for you. Um, and taking that extra step and do, doing that extra work at that stage. And uh, my final question is, what are the things that you, you wish you could tell people um, about your job? People think that things that are repeatedly um, misunderstood oh, yes. and that you just wish you could just correct all the mistakes now. This is your chance. <laughs> I hardly ever read at my desk. I basically never read at my desk. I hardly ever edit at my desk. I, my, my time at my desk is... Uh, being in touch with editors. Um, I'm often away from my desk meeting with editors, uh, away meeting with authors. Uh, I'm emailing about contracts. I'm chasing up payments. I'm preparing invoices. Um, I will only edit something at my desk if it's important that it needs to get off my desk quickly. Uh, but our jobs are not just spent reading, having a wonderful, uh, blissful time. And actually, I think to add to that, another one uh, which my friends always say is that you know, you're so lucky that you get to read so much or when I say I've got lots of work to do that weekend and they say but it's reading it's you know, <laughs> it's fun reading reading is lovely and reading is lovely and uh, we're all in publishing because we love reading but uh, reading both often reading things that aren't the kind of thing that you want to take on when we're reading submissions uh, is you know, it, it is trickier than reading a novel that you love. Mm -hmm. And also reading something to edit it, uh, it's a much slower process and you need to be constantly second-guessing yourself and really thinking about what's already been said, what the structure, what the arc of the entire thing is. So it's, um, it's a more rigorous and exhausting reading where you always wonder whether you've done enough or the right thing. So it's um it's not quite like curling up with a good book on mm. the sofa. No. And yeah, a couple of final things from mine. Um, this point about the the relative advantages of being represented by a sort of young, hungry agent mm -hmm. who's building up their list, and someone very grand who's very established. Um, what are the the pros and cons of those two sides? I think it depends somewhat whether the young and hungry agent is part of a slightly more established or much more established agency. Um, when I was starting out with my list at Aitken Alexander, I received an enormous amount of support and help from uh, my boss, um, Andrew Kidd, and he helped me on every single aspect and talked me through things and also just bolstered me, um, and that was absolutely invaluable. I think um, when it's a younger agent where you can't quite see where the kind of mooring or the or the kind of real clout is coming from it, it that would be a trickier situation um and i i think on a bigger uh, on a more senior agents list um editors might 
sit up and take more notice when something lands in their inbox. Um, suddenly kind of reading something that evening instead of kind of putting it off until the next mm. week. Um, and that is a powerful thing in itself. There's, there really are kind of pros and cons to both sides and I think really they kind of cancel each other out as long as it's an agent who is engaged with your work and I think on either side that can sometimes not be the case. So as, as, as long as you feel that they are engaged and the best champion for your work, I think you're on safe ground in terms of whether they're higher up or lower down the ladder. If anyone has any questions about literary agenting uh, that we haven't asked, do get in touch with us and we can pass them to Imogen. If you have feedback on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at alwaystakenotes.com or you can tweet to us at takenotesalways. This episode of Always Take Notes was produced by Olivia Kralin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Music was by Jess Danheiser. And we've been your hosts, Simon Acom and Cassia Sinclair. Thank you so much for joining us and we can't wait to have you back with us next time. <laughs>